For a thousand tongues to sing My great Redeemer's praise The glories of my God and King The triumphs of His grace Welcome to our time of worship. Uh, we're going to begin uh, with some words uh, from Psalm 127. Uh, these words 
uh, are uh, important for us uh, to read because we're going to sing a song in a moment that we haven't sung uh, before that are based on the first couple of words, uh, verses of this psalm. Uh, Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And as we're looking through the book of Nehemiah, I think an appropriate uh, psalm uh, is, the, is Psalm 127, isn't it? As Nehemiah is building, uh, unless it's the Lord that is behind the work, they are working in vain. Uh, and as we see through Nehemiah, the Lord certainly is behind the work, and therefore it is certainly not in vain. Uh, and our first song uh, we're going to sing is a song that's called All Glory Be to Christ. Uh, the tune is really familiar to everybody because uh, it's the tune to Old Lang Syne. So everybody knows uh, the tune, uh, but we've redeemed the words with some uh, words uh, that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand together uh, as we sing.
please uh, take your seats. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening humbly as we come to the sovereign God who rules and reigns over all. Nothing is above you or beyond you. Nothing at all is out of your control. And you are building your church to the glory of Christ. And we thank you that we have the privilege to be a part of that great work. We thank you that you use us in this great building work. We thank you that you have promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we look forward to the day that we've been singing of, when the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. And with that day in front of us, please help us to continue to serve you as our King. Please help us tonight as we come to your word, as we sing, as we take the bread and the cup together, to learn more how we can bring glory to your name together. That in our church and in our lives, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that as a body of your people, both our lips and our lives would say, all glory be to Christ our King. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we're going to have our Bible reading now. Uh, as we uh, move on in Nehemiah, we're going to see that he faces much opposition uh, in the next chapter. And in the New Testament, we read of that kind of spiritual opposition that we face in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Uh, and it's page 1177 in your church Bibles. Uh, and Pete's going to come now uh, and read that to us. This section is entitled, The Armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert 
and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Well, we're going to be thinking about spiritual warfare as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4 a little bit later. Uh, and one man in history of the church who understood uh, more perhaps than most the, the concept of spiritual warfare was the reformer uh, Martin Luther, who as he was reforming the church uh, faced the enemy both uh, physically uh, and spiritually. Uh, and he wrote about this in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we're going to stand now uh, and sing that hymn together. Let's stand and sing.
Well, last week we began uh, learning Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 together. So I'm going to bring up uh, the words uh, to uh, those verses on our screen and we'll read them uh, together as a congregation before we turn to Nehemiah. Uh, this verse is uh, a New Testament verse which explains the purpose behind God building his church uh, and it correlates to what Nehemiah is doing in the building of Jerusalem in the Old, uh, Old Testament. So let's read Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 together. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if you have uh, your Bibles, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, that's page 487 in the Church Bibles, Nehemiah uh, chapter 4. And I'll read that passage to us, beginning in verse 1, uh, and this evening we'll read down to verse 15 uh, of Nehemiah 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, 
I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. This is God's word. Well, up to this point, as we've read the last uh, couple of chapters, Nehemiah has been leading God's people in rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, and it's been going really well. Everything that he has done seems to have worked. The people are mobilized. In chapter 3, we saw all those lists of names. They are all working together to build the wall around Jerusalem. It looks really great. But in chapter 4, the wall, or the work on the wall rather, faces great danger because there is now opposition. And what we learn in chapter 4 is to stand firm in the battle. And this week we're going to look at the first 15 verses which tells us that about standing firm by describing for us the attack of the enemy. And we're going to see three attacks that the enemy brings. Uh, But before we look at those attacks, it's really important to understand really the key truth of this chapter. And that is whenever God moves through his people to do his work in his way, it will always be opposed. Let me repeat that because it's really important for this chapter. Whenever God moves through his people to do his work in his way, it will always be opposed. And Nehemiah 4 shows us what that opposition looks like and how we are to stand firm. And we'll see, and we, as we see what Nehemiah does here, that we stand firm through a combination of trusting prayer and intelligent action. Trusting prayer and intelligent action. And to bring this to light in the New Testament, as we serve our God, doing his work in his way, we also will face opposition. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we too will face opposition if we stand up for God and do the work he's called us to do. And what we're going to look at this evening is what those attacks look like. And there, is, there are three attacks. There is the attack of ridicule, there is the attack of guerrilla war, and there is the attack of discouragement. 
So first of all, the attack of ridicule. Now, before we look at what this particular ridicule was, you may have noticed as we've read through Nehemiah that the attacks have been building up to this point. So in chapter 2, verse 10, Sanballat and Tobiah, we read, are greatly disturbed. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 19, they are joined by uh, Gershom the Arab. And so we we saw that they mocked uh, the Jews. And those enemies were from the north and the east and the south of uh, Jerusalem or of Judah, where the work was going on. And they were really antagonistic against what was going on. And we're going to see that this uh, ridicule, these attacks are ramped up in this chapter. And you may be wondering, why is it that they are so angry about this work? Well, we're not told exactly why. But in history, we do know that trade routes did travel through all of these territories, including uh, Judah. And so if Judah was, or Jerusalem was rebuilt and they gained um, trade, the economic supremacy of the surrounding uh, nations might be diminished in the case of Jerusalem being rebuilt. But we're not told that here uh, exactly, but that is just a historical, uh, historical uh, fact. But what we do know for sure from the scriptures is that there is a spiritual battle going on here. We've seen that uh, from Paul in Ephesians. Behind these enemies is a greater enemy, the enemy of our souls that is opposing the work of God and continues to do so even today. And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, we see uh, Sanballat, who is usually the first name given among the enemies, uh, ridiculing uh, the Jews. He's incensed and he ridicules them. And notice in verses 2 and 3 how this is ramped up. Because in verse 2, he is in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. So it's no longer just one or two people uh, ridiculing them. Now there is a big group, an army, who are ridiculing uh, the Jews in their rebuilding work. This is a frightening group of people. And they give five different taunts given in the form of rhetorical questions. Let's look at those uh, taunts briefly. Uh, In verse 2, he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? In other words, he's demeaning them. He's telling them they're weak and they won't be able to do the job that they've been assigned. Then they they say, will they restore, restore their wall? Well, the implication is, of course, they won't restore the wall. Their work will fail. It's pointless. Will they offer sacrifices? Uh, one commentator says this is, this is kind of saying, will they pray the wall up? You know, will they offer a sacrifice so that God will, will help them? It's their only hope because they're not going to be able to do it. Uh, then they say, will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Well, of course they can't. They can't finish in a day. They they can't bring bring stones back to life. The stones are just stones. Only God can do that. And so the implication is, God isn't with you. This is going to be a complete mess. And then in verse 3, Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite, who is with uh, Sanballat, he joins in and he, he says, well, 
Uh, He was probably just trying to think of something to say. And he says, well, even if a fox comes up on there, it's not going to, he's going to break the wall down. In other words, your wall isn't even fit for purpose. And all five of these questions are designed to make the people want to stop the work because they just look ridiculous. It's interesting, though, because in answer to their questions, the Jews were feeble. They couldn't rebuild the wall in their own strength. They did have to pray. It would be weak and wobbly if God was not with them. These mockers were trying to undermine the faith of the Jewish people in their God. Because if God was with them, these questions were pointless. Because God working through them meant that the work would be done. And this is a tactic that the enemy uses a lot. Because as Christians, we are involved in an impossible work. Both in building the church and in being conformed into the image of Christ, which is the work God is doing in us. We cannot do this work on our own. We have to rely on God. And so the enemy comes with taunts and ridicule to make us feel like we will certainly fail. Or rather, make us feel like God will not really help us. The locations and people may differ, but the aim of the ridicule is to stop God's work in and through you. Have you ever faced ridicule for following Jesus in any way? If you've never faced ridicule, I might suggest that perhaps you're not following Jesus, or at least as you ought to be. But the enemy uses ridicule to undermine our faith in God. And let's face it, by the way, to the world, Christians are ridiculous. We look silly, but we know that God is behind us, don't we? We know the end. So how do we stand firm when we're faced with ridicule? Well, what does Nehemiah do? All through this passage, there is trusting prayer and intelligent action. So first of all, he prays. Listen to his prayer in verse 4 and 5. I wonder if this prayer surprises you somewhat. Listen to how he prays. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Does that prayer surprise you? This is a prayer of what's called imprecation. It's calling down God's curses on his enemies. And it may surprise you because it may sound somewhat mean or unloving. But that's not really what's going on here. Nehemiah's concern is for the glory of God. And when the enemies insult God's people because they're doing God's work, it is God that they're insulting. And he's calling on God here to honor his name as the God who will not be mocked. And one writer says that the prayer was thus not vindictive because the Jews were insulted, 
but because God's work was ridiculed. Now, sometimes uh, we are ridiculed, sometimes maybe for, for, for good reason if we do something particularly silly. But when people are ridiculing the name of God, our concern is the glory of God. And that's what's going on here with, with Nehemiah. This isn't vindictive. He's not in a, a fit of anger where he snaps. He's calling on God to glorify his name. And it's right that we pray against those who are standing against God and his work in this world. But the bigger point here is that Nehemiah's response to ridicule is not to do what many of us would do. To mock back and to come up with a witty retort. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He leaves them with the God who can stick up for himself. All through this passage, we see prayer and intelligent action, and we see that intelligent action in verse 6. The intelligent action, they just keep going. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Note that they worked with all their heart. Notice what they didn't put all their heart into. They didn't put all their heart into coming up with really good replies to the enemy. So they didn't go away and think, have, have a good meeting and say, right, we know how they're going to ridicule us. Let's come up with some really witty replies and make them look a bit silly. They didn't put their heart into that. They didn't put all their heart into building their own reputation so that they didn't look ridiculous. No, they put all their heart into keeping going with the work that God had set them. And didn't worry about the fact that the enemies were mocking God. They left God to defend himself. And they put their effort and attention and heart into God's work. And so it was getting done. And that's the response when attacked with ridicule. We pray and we work wholeheartedly. And notice how the ridicule didn't work, because in verse 6, the work carries on, and it reaches half its height. And so, because the ridicule didn't work, they come up with the next attack, and that is the attack of guerrilla war. Notice in verse 7 how the enemies increase in number. It says, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, which is where Tobiah was from, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. Uh, let me show you on a map uh, on the screen where these enemies were. So far we've seen Samaria, uh, Ammon, and the, the bottom one is where the, the Arabs were. But the people of Ashdod were in the west. And so what do you notice about those enemies? They are surrounding the people of Judah. So it's ramped up somewhat more. The enemies are surrounding them from all sides, all points of the compass, and all of them are really angry with the work that's going on in Jerusalem. And notice in verse 8, they, they have a meeting. It says they all, so all of these groups on the map, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So to fight, in verse 8, literally means to make war. But they had a problem. 
One of the reasons why they were so angry is that they couldn't literally start smashing the walls down and go and start fighting the people because Nehemiah in his pocket had from chapter 2 a letter from King Artaxerxes that said this work can go ahead. And so if these enemies were to to start taking sledgehammers and start bashing the wall down, they would have to face war with the Persian Empire. And so when they're saying they're going to fight here and stir up trouble, it is rather guerrilla warfare. Warfare that is a cleverly devised assault. That is where they are lurking in secret, jumping out on people, that kind of thing. Like you might read about wars that go on in the jungle. And that's how Satan works as well. He doesn't usually work with a a frontal assault from the pulpit of a church. He doesn't often work in obvious ways, although of course sometimes he does and sometimes pulpits do come under attack. But so often doesn't he work by taking us by surprise and lurking Now, for some Christians in the world, that enemy is a very physical threat that is hiding and seeking to catch Christians worshipping. In many countries in the world, we know that is true. But for most of us, the enemy lurks elsewhere. The enemy lurks in our pop-ups and notifications that say, look at this image. Cover this item. Spend all these hours just doing this. He lurks in the films and the music that we watch and listen to that show and speak an evil culture that's around us. And he lurks in there and he says, listen to this. He lurks in our attitudes where, where we get worked up and agitated about things that just don't really matter. And we get really worked up about them and he's lurking there to destroy the church. He lurks in the little conversations where we're talking about someone we're concerned about, but he can be in that conversation to turn that concern into gossip and slander. Paul writes about the devil's schemes, and that's another way of of talking of the plots we read about in verse 8. They are clever, they are subtle, And they surprise us like an enemy in the jungle. And all of these schemes aim at undermining the work of the church and the work of us being conformed into the image of Christ. So how do we stand firm? Well, look at verse verse 9. Nehemiah must have found out about the plots. We will read in verse 15 that he did. And what does he do at the beginning of verse 9? But we prayed. We pray to our God, so trusting prayer, and then notice the intelligent action and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So he he prays and he puts a guard in place. And so we need to do the same. So we need to pray for purity, but set the guards of internet filters and accountability strategies and all those kind of things in place to guard, day and night. 
We need to pray for discernment as we watch and listen to things rather than just throw everything out. That's not necessarily the best strategy. It might be, but we need to pray for discernment, but put guards in place. Read reviews before you watch a film to gauge the content. There's some really good uh, parent guides and on, on IMBD that you can read and it tells you about what's in the movie that you're going to watch. And it says parent guides, but let me tell you, I read those for myself. And in addition to that, set the guard in place of balancing those uh, programs you watch with scripture that you're reading and, and taking in. So you're taking in good content. Pray about what you get agitated about and put the guard in place by asking perhaps someone else to watch you and to challenge you when they see you getting worked up over something really you probably shouldn't be. We're going to face, and we do face, guerrilla war. So we stand firm with trusting prayer and intelligent action of putting guards in place. Well, in verse 9, they've reached the halfway point of building the wall. And at this point, there's this third attack, and it's the attack of discouragement. And actually, there are three attacks of discouragement. There is a loss of heart, a loss of confidence, and a loss of support. So in verse 10, there is a loss of heart. It says, Meanwhile, the people of Judah said... The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot build the, rebuild the wall. It's interesting that they've reached halfway at this point, and so they've done half the work, so they know they can do it, and the second half just seems like it's too much work. It's a little bit like in your house, and I know um, many of you have done this or are doing it, when you have to clear out a room, and there's enthusiasm for clearing out the room, and you're all up for it, and the room gets cleared, and then all of a sudden you've got to put everything back in place, and you look at what's to do, and you think, I just can't be bothered with this anymore. This is just too hard, and it's discouraging, isn't it? And that's kind of what's going on here. The initial enthusiasm has waned, the people are exhausted, the work is hard, and it just seems like it will never end. And brothers and sisters, the work of the church can be like this. Because until Jesus comes, let me tell you, it will never end. Parenting can seem like this. Apparently it does end (laughs) at some point. But no, it doesn't really end, does it? You're always parents. And it can be exhausting. And it can be hard. And in churches, in our church, there's lots of mess. And people can be in a mess and it can feel overwhelming and we can look at it and we can think you know what I just can't do this anymore there's a a loss of heart Uh, in verse 11 there's a loss of confidence we see there the enemies come again and rather than ridicule they say before they know it or see us we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work this is probably a report that Nehemiah got rather than the enemies saying this to Nehemiah But the enemies were spreading discouraging words that was frightening. They were threatening to kill people before they even knew what hit them. This was aimed at knocking their confidence. It was discouraging. So a a loss of heart, 
a loss of confidence, and in verse 12, a loss of support. Notice who comes in verse 12, the Jews who lived near them. The Jews who should have been supporting the work of rebuilding the wall, they come and they say 10 times over, which means over and over again, wherever you turn, they will attack us. The Jews lived nearby. They probably were under pressure and they wanted the work to stop, to stop the pressure on them. This was their brothers and sisters coming and saying, we don't really support this work anymore. This is, this is hard. And can't fellow Christians sometimes be a discouragement? Sadly. A work can be told, we're told that you're, you're too extreme. Or you just can't do it. You can say things that are so unhelpful. Let me encourage you, don't be that Christian. Don't be the Christian who is discouraging to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when we came to move here, uh, uh, eight years ago or so, uh, there, were, there were people that were not Christians that thought we were silly and said it was a bad idea coming. And I totally understood that because they're not Christians. What was most discouraging when there was, was when there was a Christian that would come and they would say, I don't understand why you're doing this. Why would you, why would you, do, why would you leave? Why would you move there? Why would you be a pastor? That was discouraging because they should understand. Let's not be those Christians. Let's encourage each other in the work that we're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does Nehemiah do in the midst of discouragement? Well, he stands firm. Verse 13 has the word, therefore. So it's his response to the discouragement. And the first thing he does is he plugs the gaps Uh, The exposed parts that were most in danger, he stations people there. And in verse 13, we read that he plugs the vulnerable areas and he gives the people swords, spears, and bows. He gives them what they need in order to defend themselves. So the swords would have been for close combat, uh, the spears for, for more medium combat, and the bows to fire from a distance. In other words, they have everything they need given to them to be ready to defend themselves and fight in attack when the enemy comes. In other words, they were told and shown, you can do this. You're ready. He gave them what they needed for the attack, which would have encouraged them. Uh, uh, A famous uh, book by Sun Xu called The Art of War said, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Do you know where you are vulnerable to the enemy's attack? Because if you are unaware, you will be discouraged because it will feel like you will never win. And awareness means that we can take action and fight back. And God provides us with all we need in order to fight. And in verse 14, fight is what Nehemiah calls for. This verse, uh, I think, is key to this chapter and key to understanding how we fight against the enemy. Look at verse 14. He says, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, 
Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So he gets everyone together. They're all there with their their swords and their spears and their bows. They're ready. And he encourages them with this motivational little speech that has three points. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Fight. Now, if Nehemiah had said simply, don't be afraid, it wouldn't actually be that helpful, would it? Because the enemy is frightening. It is frightening. But there's a reason we don't need to be afraid. He says, remember the Lord. The Lord is on our side. The Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him. Remember the Lord who said, who who enabled me to come here by changing the heart of the king. Remember the Lord who gave you that enthusiasm in the first place to pick up these stones and start rebuilding the wall. Remember the Lord, the one who bought Israel from Egypt out of slavery. Remember the Lord, the one who brought you back from exile. Remember him. He is great and awesome. Remember his promises that the prophets have told us about. Remember him. You don't need to be afraid because he's far greater and more awesome than any of the enemies. Even when they all get together, they don't even compare to the Lord our God. Remember the Lord. That's why he says don't be afraid. If someone comes to you as a, and they're a Christian and they're, they're concerned and they're, they're worried about the battle, don't just tell them, oh, pull your socks up, stop being afraid and send them off. Tell them, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And so when you are discouraged in the battles that you face, remember the Lord. How might we do that? We can sing. We can listen to music that reminds us of the greatness of God. We can read scripture that reminds us of God's promises. If you, if you want a, a, a great place to go just to be encouraged, read Romans chapter 8. Um, it, it, it's a lot of people's favorite chapter in the Bible for a reason. Speak to other Christians who can pray and encourage and help you. And take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do uh, shortly, where we remember the Lord and remember his salvation and the great work he's done for us. So remembering the Lord is the trust that we see through Nehemiah throughout chapter 4. Trusting prayer followed by intelligent action. What's the action? Fight. In verse 8, the enemy is going to fight, and here we're told to fight back. And in in, in Ephesians chapter 6, we read there about the armor of God. And you know what? When we put the armor of God on, it's not so that we can waddle up to Warwick Castle and people can look at our lovely armor. We put the armor on so that we can fight the battles that God puts in our way. And note what they're fighting for in verse 14. Notice the incentive. It is their families that are at stake. In fact, verse 14 will be a great verse to pin on the wall of your house. A verse for family ministry, isn't it? Fight for your families. Applying this to to parenting, it is a privilege, isn't it, to parent our children, but it is also a fight 
Children don't want to be disciplined. They, they don't want restrictions. They, they're listening all the day to their unbelieving friends and the school curriculum and swimming in a swamp of false doctrine every single day. And it is a fight to focus their minds on the truth. It's a fight, isn't it, to pray for them every day. It's a fight to read the Bible with them. It feels easy to give up, but remember the Lord and fight. And the call here is to fight for them because it's for their good, even if and when sometimes you even are fighting them for them. Don't give up. Fight for your families. But in the New Testament, the church is the family of God. And we need to fight for one another for the same things. To speak out against sin. To warn each other and encourage each other to live for the Lord Jesus. And the battle is hard, isn't it? And tiring. But we've got to fight. I'm tired sometimes of the battle to fight for our family of faith here in Pelsall. And we've got to fight. And so often the, that fight that I'm tired of is that the fight against relationships with unbelievers that people get into. We, we have fought that battle so many times. We've upset so many people. And I felt like giving up. I felt like saying, well, maybe, maybe there's a way it will be okay. I've listened to people say, maybe, well, they might come to faith in Jesus if I date them. But I've also seen over many, many years now, people make a train wreck of their faith over and over and over again because of this issue. And so we fight. We fight for the family of faith. In that issue and in many others, we fight. And you know, there's never a ceasefire. You know, the enemy doesn't call a ceasefire. If we want to call a ceasefire, we'll just fall and not stand. We've got to fight for our families. And we do that by remembering the Lord. Remembering the Lord. And notice in verse 15 the result of the battle. It says there, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. Note here, who gets the glory for victory? It was God who frustrated the plans of the enemy. As we conclude, I want to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to see how we stand firm in the battle, we need not look much further than Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was ridiculed, wasn't he? He was mocked mercilessly on the cross. And what did he do? He prayed and he continued the work until it was finished. The Lord Jesus Christ faced guerrilla war. Enemies were lurking everywhere, weren't they? The Pharisees and, and teachers of the law were constantly trying to trap him and they plotted against him. 
His own family came and tried to take him away. And even in the midst of his own disciples, there was the enemy lurking. What did Jesus do? He carried on with the work. And boy, didn't Jesus face discouragement and disappointment. He, he did the great works of his father and was told he was Beelzebul. He would heal people. And then people would complain that it was the Sabbath day. What are you doing? He would look at Jerusalem and weep. And he would teach his disciples who over and over again, ten times over, just would not get it. But in all these attacks, Jesus trusted his father and continued the work all the way to the cross where he paid the price for sin. And here's the wonderful end to this sermon. Because verse 15 applies to Christ too. Because just when his enemies thought they had won, what happened? God frustrated their plans, didn't he? He rose from the dead. He burst forth from the grave. And his victory is our victory. His victory is where we stand. And so the battles that we face day by day by day are small battles in a war that is already won. Because he's defeated sin and death and Satan forever. And so when Paul writes in Ephesians that we need to stand, we're standing in his victory. The outcome of the war is not in doubt. Christ has won. God has frustrated the plans of his enemies and will always do so until that day when we stand before the throne forever and we'll say, all glory be to Christ the King. Remember the Lord and fight. And what a Lord we are remembering, the one who has conquered death. And we're going to remember him uh, just in a moment in the Lord's Supper. But we're going to sing uh, before we do that. Uh, we're going to sing a song that uh, speaks of the, the faith that we profess. Uh, and in one of the verses in uh, this hymn, I'm going to read you the words now before we sing it. Because it sums up brilliantly what we've just said. It says, we will stand on Christ alone. The unyielding cornerstone, nations rage and devils roar, still he reigns forevermore. Let's stand and let's sing together.
please uh, take your seats. As we come to the Lord's uh, Supper, we uh, do exactly what we've just been reading. We remember the Lord and we remember his uh, victorious fight to pay the penalty for our sins. Uh, And wonderfully, he accomplished that on the cross uh, and it's in the victory that he achieved there and his resurrection where we stand. And it's wonderful that he gives us this picture uh, of his body and his blood through the bread and through the cup, so that together, as one body, we can remember what he has done. But before we come to take the bread and the cup, let's just have uh, just a moment of quiet as we reflect and remember. Uh, And after just a moment of that, uh, I'll pray before we come to take the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are called to remember a God who is great and awesome. And we have the privilege of of calling you our Father in heaven. And we come to you tonight, Lord, asking that you would remind us again through these elements of bread and wine uh, of the wonderful work that you did for us in fighting to defeat sin on the cross. And Heavenly Father, we've seen tonight how the Christian life is uh, a battle. We pray you would forgive us for the times where we have failed in that battle because of our sin. And I pray for those of us who are weary in the battle. I pray that as we remember the Lord again, you would put strength in us so that we can remember the Lord and fight. And we ask this in the name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Well, I would ask the service to come forward. We take the bread and the cup to remember the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This meal is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation uh, and are following him as their Lord. If that describes you, then you are welcome to remember the Lord with us by taking the bread and drinking the cup. Uh, First of all, we will take the bread, uh, we'll hold on to our bread, and then we'll eat the bread together as we remember the body of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Jesus said, eat this in remembrance of me. The cup reminds us of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. As with uh, the bread, if you would hold on to your cup, and then we'll drink the cup together. Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Before we sing our final uh, hymn, I just would like to read you uh, some words uh, from Romans 8 that I want want us to bathe in, in the sense that this is what the cross means for us. So Paul writes... From verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? 
No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we say amen? Let's remember these truths. Remember the Lord and fight. And we're going to stand in our final hymn in the light of what we've seen at the Lord's table, in the light of these words that we've just read and what we've heard tonight. We're going to sing, O church, arise and put your armor on. Let's do so together. Every eye and heart 
Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Amen.